Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. everybody and welcome back to truth and justice this is your final bonus episode i know it's been a long time we've been doing these bonus episodes in between seasons 11 and 12 we've just had a lot going on and it's a huge case that we're about to start next week so i really appreciate the time and the patience that you all have given me in the in the grace to uh, have some time to get ourselves caught up and do all the traveling we needed to do and get ready to go so for this last bonus episode i'm actually going to be i'm doing right now a facebook live which uh those in the facebook chat have determined and agree with me that from now on we'll be doing youtube lives for this because the facebook platform is kind of a pain in the butt to stream uh but what i have for you today is i as promised last week i have the reply brief from damien's attorneys replying to the reply that uh keith cressman district attorney had filed trying to stop them from testing the dna and as I mentioned, I was told by Steve Braga, Damien's attorney, that this would be a very strong response, and it is very much just that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down some highlights from the um, from the reply brief, and then I'll be taking some Q&A from the Facebook Live, which uh, for any of you that joined here, again, I want to thank you very much. This is, I'm trying to get dig into getting the uh, season 12 first episode out and ready. And just doing this little Q&A like this for I know a lot of you guys like doing it. I like doing it. And it also just saves me a lot of time so I can dig into the meat and potatoes about for what we have coming. Uh, so that being said, there's going to be a quick little commercial break here. And then we're going to get right into this uh, reply memorandum in support of petition to conduct additional DNA testing in the West Memphis 3 case. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, so you guys remember, uh, it was several weeks ago, I mean, the, the quick rundown is we have this whole saga, right, where uh, Keith Cressman said that he would was willing to test the evidence in the West Memphis 3 case, then he said the evidence was destroyed, then, they, then after Damien sued them, uh, they miraculously found the evidence, uh, then he told them, well, you need to file the petition with the court, they did that, and then Cressman came back and, and wrote this long reply. 
basically trying to make it sound like it was absolutely asinine and stupid for Damien to be even asking for this DNA testing. Uh, and one of the first things that he did was say that uh, they made a fatal error because they filed it in the wrong court to begin with, which shows you just how sharp Keith Cressman is as I break all of this down for you. So I have this 11-page response from Damien's attorneys, uh, his attorney, uh, Paul Banka, or excuse me, Patrick Banka. Uh, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not going to read you the 11 page response, but I've got some stuff highlighted here to give you kind of the breakdown. I know there were some people that had some concerns when, um, I read to you, I broke down the state's response because they did make it seem like this was an insane thing for Damien to even be asking for. Well, I think it's going to make you feel a little bit better. So let me just read to you the opening statement of this written by Damien's attorneys. I'll read it verbatim. Relying on erroneous facts, hiding behind strained theories of law, and ironically citing evidentiary preservation obligations, the prosecuting attorney himself had to personally disclaim the state has now finally indicated for the first time after years of discussion that it, quote, cannot agree to the court granting Eccles' request to test certain evidence in the case with new DNA technology. So what he's saying here is after, after all of the time where they said they would do the testing, they would do the testing. If we only knew where the evidence was, we would do the testing. That's been going on since 2018. Uh, and this is the first time now that they're saying, that, that Cressman is saying, well, now that we have it, now we just can't allow this to happen. The way the document is set up is it goes through the state's arguments one by one, each point, and counters them. Uh, and so the very first argument that the state made was the place of conviction. The document says the prosecuting attorney argues that the petition contains, quote, a fatal error because it was not filed in the court in which the conviction was entered. And from what you'll see here, uh, Cressman did zero homework before filing this response. Uh, moving down a little bit, it says here, this is simply false as any review of the case record would reveal. The 2011 Alfred plea proceedings resulted in the Craighead County convictions being vacated and replaced with the Alfred plea convictions in Crittenden County. The state's opening argument thus falls completely flat. So that's point one. Don't think anybody can argue that Damien's team wins that one because literally uh, Cressman's just wrong about what court it was filed in. Uh, and you almost wonder, did he, did he, did he mail in the rest of the argument because, or the reply, because he figured doesn't matter anyway, cause it's in the wrong court. If that's the case, he screwed up pretty bad. So the second point was the completion of Eccles sentence. I have highlighted here. The prosecuting attorney next argues that to allow a non-prisoner to seek relief would make the habeas corpus statute absurd. Damien's team replies, this conclusion is based on the flawed assumption that the only consequence that matters from a conviction is its sentence, which is contrary, in fact, to, as, as cited here, the Supreme Court that says there are many disabilities or burdens which may flow from a defendant's conviction that give him a substantial stake in the judgment of conviction which survives the satisfaction of the sentence imposed on him. Now, I'm not a lawyer. That was kind of legalese, but basically they're saying that a defendant still has a reason to fight his conviction even after they've already served their sentence. That comes down from the Supreme Court. So I don't know how Cressman thinks he can make that argument. 
Uh, but the case law is very, and they, and they cite other case law in here too. It's very clear that that's not a valid argument. There is no restriction that says you can't file habeas corpus because you're done with your sentence already. That's ridiculous. And then the next segment, number three on the state's part was they argue the timeliness of the petition. It says the prosecuting attorney relies upon a statutory presumption that deems this petition, quote, presumptively untimely because it was filed more than 36 months after conviction. Now, that's the one I told you guys way back before any of this was even filed was kind of the non-argument. They kept saying, well, if they really wanted to do it, they only had 36 months to file it. First of all, and it is explained in here, as I explained to you, the law doesn't say they have to request DNA testing within 36 months of a conviction. It says that if they do, then it's presumed timely, meaning the state can't argue that it's not. After 36 months, then, of course, an argument can be made and that can be decided by a judge. But they, again, made the same argument as though it was one of the nons on Facebook saying that, well, it, it can't even happen because they were, they were past 36 months. Damien's lawyers continue, but it should be obvious to any readers of Eccles' petition that it is premised on statutory grounds that allow that presumption to be rebutted upon showing that a new method of technology is substantially more probative than prior testing available. They go on to say, the new method of technology detailed in Eccles' petition makes this timeliness argument a complete red herring. So essentially, the timeliness argument per the Arkansas law says that there's new technology that can test the evidence that is more probative than the technology that was available at the time of conviction, then timeliness doesn't matter anymore. It's kind of the clock's reset, so to speak. Uh, and so as they say, uh, that entire argument's just a red herring. The fourth topic says scientific support for the new technology. Uh, and this part's interesting. It says, the prosecuting attorney seeks to convert the statutory test described above that the new method of technology is substantially more probative than prior testing into two subsets. One being whether the new technology is a generally accepted scientific method of testing and the other whether the new technology violates the requirement that physical evidence in violent offense cases must be preserved. I'll just continue reading here because it's very good. The way it's written is very good. Uh, Banker writes, he shifts the goalpost in this regard. Of course, because the new MVEC technology so clearly meets the statutory test. Indeed, the very purpose of this new technology is to have its collection system extract DNA that would not be collected by prior DNA technology. Obviously, new DNA evidence to test is, quote, substantially more probative than none. Because that's what we had before regarding these ligatures was no DNA. And now we want to use a method that can get a whole bunch of DNA. So certainly that would be considered more probative than nothing. Banker goes on to attack the next point made by the state, which is generally accepted scientific testing method. So the prosecuting attorney contends that the instant petition should be denied because Eccles has not established that MBAC uses scientifically sound methods consistent with accepted forensic practices. So you remember in the reply brief from the state that I read a few weeks ago that he said he did a search of case law and there was only two cases where it's mentioned, where MVAC is mentioned, and it's not scientifically accepted. Well, uh, listen how Banka just rips him to shreds here. In order to make this point, the state has to completely ignore the landmark research study 
that the Federal Bureau of Investigation, or FBI, conducted on the MVAC technology as reported on page 9 of Eccles' petition. He didn't even need to research the study that's been done. It was part of Eccles' petition. He put the study in the petition where he asked for the DNA to be tested, and that was ignored by Cressman. It goes on to say, Amazingly, despite the FBI's status as the top forensic agency and laboratory in the country, the state's response nowhere even mentions the FBI's analysis of this new technology. And here it gets really good. Quote, This court deserves better than that. And accordingly, we provide the online link to the FBI's research study for the court's own review. The reply continues. In addition to ignoring the FBI, the state's response also fails to utter a single word about the MVAC laboratory accreditation information that is also recited in Eccles' petition. Tellingly, the information reveals that the MVAC laboratory is accredited to the same level of forensic standard, which is ISO IEC 17025 2017, it's the same forensic standard as the Arkansas State Crime Laboratory. Literally, the MVAC lab, Pure Gold Forensic, where we want to send this de- evidence to be tested, has the exact same forensic accreditation as the Arkansas State Crime Lab. And Cressman just forgot to mention that in his brief where he said it's not an accepted science. Banka continues, The prosecuting attorney advises that his, quote, general case law research reveals only two cases in which courts mention MVAC, end quote. Even if accurate, this case count is hardly surprising in this case because it is a new technology. And precisely because of its newness, you wouldn't expect it to be mentioned in a whole lot of cases. There's also a footnote on this page at the bottom that says significantly the level of accreditation that Pure Gold Forensics has is the same level of certification as Virginia's Bodie Technology Laboratory, which is the lab that did all the other DNA testing on this case back in 2007. And another footnote says that their general, their general research to date, they've been informed of cases in Maryland, Florida, Georgia, California, Utah, Colorado, Washington, and Texas that have all accepted MBAC processed evidence. A couple more than just the two that Cressman was able to find. So then Banka goes on to, <laughs> to cite the evidence from one of the cases where um, Cressman had said there were two cases that mentioned MVAC. And one of them, there it had to do with um, DNA evidence that was extracted from a pillowcase. And, and I'll read the quote out of the reply brief here. Banka writes, the scientific reliability of the MVAC system was therefore at the very heart of this appeal, which ultimately affirmed the technology's use and the defendant's conviction. So there's a whole lot there I'm not reading to you, but the defendant appealed based on the scientific acceptability, I guess, of the MVAC technology and the case cited by Cressman, and the court upheld the conviction and said that it was, in fact, sound science. And that's, the, that's one of the cases that Cressman used to argue against its reliability. Now we get into the preservation of physical evidence. Remember, Cressman said that uh, you couldn't test the DNA because if you test the DNA, you're going to alter the evidence. And, and you know that you know, we're supposed to preserve this evidence. So 
you can't alter it, which is silly, right? I mean, that means like you can't test any DNA. Uh, and also, he's one to talk about preserving evidence. Well, we're not the only ones that share that view. Uh, Bell Banka kind of feels the same way. So let me read you some of this about the preservation of physical evidence. I love this line. This is my favorite line of the whole thing. Banker writes, having been educated by Eccles Council on the state's obligation to preserve evidence for future DNA testing, the prosecuting attorney now suggests that MVAC, quote, isn't a viable testing method because it, quote, cleans physical evidence through its wet vacuum collection process, which rather than preserving physical evidence is a one-shot deal that forever alters it, end quote. Okay, so before we move on there, did you guys catch the snarky bit in there that having been educated by Damien's attorneys, now the state understands its obligation. <laughs> so someone was commenting on my grin when I was reading that bit. So just to back that up, just in case you missed it, what is Damien's lawyers wrote is that Cressman had to learn through the lawsuit that Damien filed when he said he destroyed the evidence that he's supposed to preserve it. And now he is the champion of preserving evidence all of a sudden. Even though I actually was taught the reason I was a little late on this live stream today, because I was talking to a reporter who was one of the ones that broke the whole story about the destroying evidence. Uh, I think he's going to be on our follow up next week. Cressman told him in April of last year that he was trying to find a, trying to get a court order to allow him to destroy that evidence while he was telling Damien's team that they were allowed to test it. But now he's worried about it altering the evidence and not preserving it. I'll move on. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. It is a matter of scientific fact, of course, that any testing of evidence for DNA alters the physical evidence to some degree. And it goes on to explain how DNA testing alters evidence. Uh, and, and I'll pick it back up here. The Arkansas DNA statutes preservation obligation has to allow for this degree of evidentiary alteration through the testing process, or else there would never be any DNA testing ever turning the statute into a wholly meaningless enactment. Fortunately, this case does not require the court to calibrate too precisely what degree of evidentiary alteration might be affected by the MVAC technology. And uh, I have it all highlighted, but I'll just kind of give you the Reader's Digest here. He says there's six bindings, and there are two knots on every piece of binding. And since we have no reason to believe that the killer would have interacted with any one of those knots differently than the others, the court can just decide how many of the knots that they will allow for this round of testing. 
meaning they can they can say, well, we don't want to destroy any evidence that's there. So instead of testing all 12 knots, let's test four knots and see if we get anything. And then you would you would suspect that if, if say, you test four knots and you find somebody's DNA in two, three, or all four of them, then the state might say, okay, well, let's do a little more testing on, on more knots. Uh, but they can easily preserve the evidence. And if they test, say, four of the knots and leave eight of the knots, then there's no reason to believe that those eight knot, the other eight knots wouldn't have the same level of DNA or, um, or, or evidence on them because there's no indication that the killer acted any differently with one knot than the other. Nick is making fun of me for saying Reader's Digest. I feel like there are some people in here that are old enough like me to, to get the reference, Nick. Maybe you're too, are you too young for that? Or are you here with, up here with me? I'll, I'll move on. We'll come back to that. Uh, the next point is the impact of the proposed testing of new evidence. The prosecuting attorney's final argument is that the jury was presented with the substantial evidence of guilt and that given this trial evidence, another person's DNA at the crime scene wouldn't prove that the defendant was innocent. This position is a repetition of the same mistake the state made in its hearing of Eccles' case before the Arkansas Supreme Court. So I'm not going to go through and read all of this, but essentially this is the same argument made back in uh, 2007. The hearings before that uh, were the, for the last time that Damien's team was trying to get DNA tested. And the, you know they said that, well, just because they find somebody else's DNA there, that's not going to make them innocent. And uh, essentially the Supreme Court disagreed with that. So they, ha- they not only have like a precedent to look back upon, but they have a precedent in this case. Like he's literally making the exact same argument that the Supreme Court shot down before and remanded the case back to the circuit court, which is where it ultimately ended up in the Alford plea. Another thing that the state's arguing there is that they're trying to twist the case law from the Supreme Court and say that even if someone else's DNA is found at the crime scene, that DNA has to be tested against or has to be compared or lumped in with all of the evidence that the jury heard that indicates that Damian, Jason, and Jesse are guilty. But that's not exactly what it says. I'm not a lawyer enough to quite understand it, but they're saying, no, no, they're just saying you have to take all of the evidence in consideration together. It doesn't say the DNA evidence has to overpower the guilty evidence if it, if it say it's exculpatory DNA, but that's all a little above my pay grade, so to speak. All right. So we're already 20 minutes into this and I know you, the chat's going crazy. I got a bunch of questions that I want to, uh, that I want to answer. So I'll, I'll make sure that I publish this document on our website so you can read the rest. Uh, mostly it just concludes. I, I will read, uh, this first paragraph of the conclusion though. I think it kind of sums things up. It says, The prosecuting attorney nominally recognizes that he is a, quote, minister of justice and shouldn't oppose a post-trial motion without a reasonable basis. That's Cressman's own quote. But his concluding points in support of that premise demonstrate nothing but the unreasonableness of his position here. The fact that the defendant was imprisoned and now he's free is wholly unrelated to the question of Eccles' guilt or innocent. It is a pure non sequitur. Likewise, the claim that the proposed testing would forever alter the physical evidence is simply false. As discussed above, appropriately defining the parameters of the proposed testing moots the issue entirely. And finally, the statutory change making the DNA testing law more stringent is a soundbite without substance. More stringent or not, the new standard requiring petitioner to advance a theory of defense that it established actual innocence 
would certainly be satisfied by DNA results identifying a third-party perpetrator as the individual who bound the child victims with their sneaker-laced ligatures on the night they were murdered. No credible minister of justice would even think of ignoring the power of such potential evidence. And that, so I did skip something that I want to circle back to real quick. Okay, so regarding what was just said there, uh, which was that no one could ignore that evidence. If there is evidence of another person in those bindings, then that can't be ignored. You can't just say, well, that's not enough to overturn the conviction. That's bullshit. You know it. I know it. So does Crossman. And what was on the previous page, I skipped past this because as you can see on YouTube Live, it's like a whole page. But I'll sum it up for you. The uh, Banka gives a hypothetical here. After, after first explaining that clearly that evidence would be very meaningful if you found that evidence, uh, DNA in the ligatures. And he, and he gives this hypothetical. He says, a simple hypothetical will illustrate the difference of, this types of, of these types of evidence. On one hand, we have a gun that is found in a murder scene where the victim was not shot. And on the other hand, we have a gun that is found at a murder scene where the victim was shot. In the first situation, DNA from the gun might be characterized as being simply another person's DNA at the crime scene, which is the language that Cressman used in his response. However, in the second situation, DNA from the gun must be more logically characterized as being the DNA of the killer. The ligatures fall squarely into the second situation because we know that the killer or killers used them in the commission of these crimes. Why is it so hard for the prosecuting attorney to see, or perhaps to admit, that Eccles' petition presents a real, new technology opportunity to obtain the biological fingerprints of the killer or killers, whoever that might be? All right, so there, the chat was going crazy while I was reading all of that, uh, so I'm going to try to scroll back through some of that, but um, now I'm looking at the camera ready to answer your questions. I'm reading some up there now in the Facebook chat, so we'll do a little Q&A here before we wrap things up. So Erica says, assuming things finally go forward and testing of the ligatures takes place, what happens if they get no usable DNA at all, or if they get, once again, DNA from a parent or step-parent? The other items be able to then be tested. Uh, yeah, so obviously those are options. If there's no DNA found, this case will probably be a mystery forever. I don't think that there's um, anything else we're going to have down the road that will be any give us a better shot than this MVAC testing. If it comes back to be apparent, so there's a difference between we have the one hair that is attributed to Hobbs, but we got to be clear. We don't know that that's Terry Hobbs' hair. There's a hair that is the, the mitochondrial DNA profile. Uh, Terry Hobbs can't be eliminated from it. That hair was found in the binding. And actually, it's a, there's, there's been a lot of debate about that, but it's actually cited in uh, this case law that says it was in Michael Moore's binding. So wrapped up in Michael Moore's binding in the knot was a hair that may or may not belong to Terry Hobbs, but he can't be eliminated from it. The state's able to argue there that that could be transfer. We know Michael Moore was in Terry Hobbs' house, house that day. And it could be a hair floating around. Some, I mean, we have to believe, because keep in mind, it's not like 
the boy's shoes were just tied. So say that hair got somehow wrapped up into the knot when Michael tied his shoes when he left the house. The killer untied their shoes, pulled the laces all the way through all the eyelets. Think about completely removing laces from a shoe. Then retied knots in a new place, right? So it's not where they were tied when they were tied as a shoelace, but now they're tied as bindings. And the hair stuck in there. So they can make the argument that that it was transfer hair that he picked up just from being in his house. But what do you think the odds are that a hair that got onto the lace in that scenario made it through a whole day of playing, riding a bike, being untied, pulled through all the eyelets, and then retied and still ends up just visible sticking out of the new knots? But to answer your question, if they find, say, a parent or a step-parent's DNA in the knots, it would depend on how many, right? So, so, so say, and it would depend, you know, I guess if they're alibied, you know, for, but, you know, for example, Pam Hobbs was at work. So if you find her DNA in there, you could certainly, well, she probably tied Stevie's shoe. Her, her DNA might be on those laces. But what you wouldn't expect is her DNA to be found on more than D- than Stevie's laces, right? So so you might see her DNA on one or two of the knots. You shouldn't see it on all of them. We tend to believe that that the killer's DNA will be found in all of the knots. I mean, there's a good, there's a high likelihood if the if the evidence is preserved well enough, it's it's hard to tie a knot without shedding skin cells into it. Um, the water may have washed some of it away, but so it just depends. So anybody's DNA that's found in say all twelve knots, that's a killer plain and simple. There's no getting around it. Chris says, what is the time required to complete MVAC testing? A day, a month, a week? Isn't how long does the physical process take? Uh, I was told when I was at Pure Gold that they could probably turn it around for us in a couple of weeks, uh, that they could get the, a lot of times your issues with um, long times to get DNA testing done. A lot of times those issues are due to backlog that, you know, they're just, they're just too many. They're waiting to get tested. Uh, but I was told that, uh, they could get it in, get it impacted, get it tested, and get results within a couple of weeks. Beth says, uh, Bob, this is my second live with you. Please tell Mike that he will be missed, and congratulations on his new job. I will definitely do that. Actually, he's going to hear that right now. So there you go, Mike, as you're editing this. Beth says she misses you, and congrats on your new job and your your night gig where you, after doing work all day, still edit these podcasts for us. We love you, buddy. Corinne says, if somehow nothing comes up on the knots, can they do the sticks next? Or does that require another filing? It would require another filing from the court. I would think that there's probably less of likelihood of finding DNA on the stick. There's more likelihood of DNA being put onto the sticks because they were jagged and they were pushed down in the mud. But they were under flowing water the entire time. So I don't know. I mean, we'd cert- I, I think they would certainly try again for that. but. You know, the, the knots are hopefully our best bet. Nick says, would you think a stepdad would have actually tied a friend's shoes? That's anecdotal. So it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't matter what I think. I mean, I'm a stepdad. When my daughter was little, my stepdaughter was little. I'm sure I tied a friend's shoe here and there. I don't know. The thing is, Terry wasn't home that day. Like Terry says, he never saw any of the kids. We know he wasn't home when Michael Moore was, or Chris Byers were at his house earlier that day. So the only argument there is that one of his hairs was just floating around and got caught up into Michael's shoelaces. 
Heather says, back to preservation of evidence. Why didn't you say that MVAC still preserves it? The filter can be tested multiple times. Yeah, so they didn't make that argument. Um, I would have. I don't know that, that they quite understand it yet, but they, I think they made a good enough point anyway. And so what Heather's talking about here is, as I described, so with MVAC, instead of just having a little swab, it collects all the evidence onto a disc about the size of, say, a 50-cent piece, a half dollar. And they only cut like a small piece of that off to test it and still preserve the rest of it. But I'm sure that argument could be made later, but I don't think it's even necessary. Danielle says, I believe you may have mentioned it before, but how many testing samples can they get out of the collection filter? As many as that, I mean, they can cut it. Think of a pizza. You know, see, I just made a frozen pizza for my son before I came down here today for dinner. And (laughs) somebody asked about my puppy earlier. We're missing our pizza cutter. So I had to cut it with a knife. I'm pretty sure Mac took that outside. But anyway, you know, you can cut it. You can make that piece of pizza into four slices. You can make it into eight slices. You can make it into six slices. The same thing with that disc. Um, I believe that Susanna told me when I was there that... I don't want to speak for her, but I, I feel like I remember her saying that they typically will like cut it into quarters and try testing just one quarter at a time and save three quarters of it, I believe. But I remember her showing me that they'll still save the majority of it or the overwhelming majority of it when they do the testing. Susanna wants to know, do you think that if it is Terry that they'll arrest him? Uh, I would I would certainly hope that if there is evidence found that clear and convincing evidence of who murdered those boys that the police would arrest them. Yeah, I certainly hope so. So if it's a situation where I don't want to speak about like Terry, I don't want to say that because it could be anybody. I'm not suggesting that it's, that it's Terry, but the, let's say they, they, they find compelling evidence. If it's enough to exonerate, if the evidence is compelling enough to exonerate the West Memphis three, then it should be, it will be plenty enough to make an arrest. I think at that point, if they don't, the DOJ will. I mean, somebody will. Somebody will get somebody to do something. But I don't think that if a court says this evidence is clear and convincing evidence of the actual innocence of these three, if a judge says that, and and the evidence that is the clear and convincing evidence is that somebody else's fucking skin cells are under every single ligature of these boys, they I. I want to believe, nothing would surprise me, but I want to believe that even Keith Cressman or whoever the prosecutor is in the West Memphis Police Department would finally say, okay, we fucked up and go make the arrest, I hope. Beth says, with all this back and forth with the lawyer and the prosecutors, can they retry the boys? No, because as of now, they are already convicted, so it would be double jeopardy to take them back and try them for murder again. They can't do that. They've already literally been convicted. And completed their sentence. The only way that could happen, and it wouldn't, I don't think it's ever happened, but it could happen is if some some sort of evidence came up to where the court ordered the conviction vacated, but it wasn't an exoneration on actual innocence, but they can, then technically they're not convicted again. In that case, technically the prosecutor could say, well, now I'm going to take him back to trial again. Uh, which would give them the opportunity to prove their evidence, their innocence, or maybe give them an opportunity to go back to prison again. I, I mean, that would be a mess. I, that would never happen. Uh, but no, right now they're pretty safe because they're out. You know, it would be it would be a disaster for their lives if you know. That's that's why you know. I mean, the, the evidence is why I believe so strongly in Damian, Jason, and Jesse's innocence. But beyond that, you know, you know, people said, well, they can't go back to prison even if they find their DNA. They're just like whatever. 
think of what that would do for their lives, their careers, the, you know, I mean, they would be the most hated people in, in this country. And they'd probably get, they'd probably get murdered, to be honest with you. If that happened, um, something would happen. But, but yeah, I mean, they, they are able to squeak out a living, even with these felony murder convictions on their record, mostly because there's a lot of people out there that support them and believe they're innocent. If that wasn't the case, then I don't know what they'd be able to do. Chris says in Damien's tweet of the evidence, I only see one bike. How many are in evidence? Um, I believe, I believe they're both in evidence. There might have only been one in that picture, but I believe they have both bikes. Joshua says, please tell Mike, quote, how dare you leave? Expletive, expletive, expletive. And then he says, just kidding, buddy. Congrats and good luck. Matt says, I would love to know what Jamie Ballard has to say now. I would too. I tried to interview her for the, uh, for the documentary and one of the producers talked to her and she, she didn't want to be interviewed. I was actually just talking about that too with um, uh, the, the, the gentleman who will hopefully, uh, George Jared is his name that I'm hoping to have on. So we don't have Janet next week for the follow-up or this week. It'll be, you know, this, this week, Wednesday. So it's just me and Zach, but I think what I might do kind of flip-flop because this is kind of a Q and a, so then I might just do an interview for the follow-up um, with George. Uh, but we were, we were talking a little bit about that too, because he, he was one of the ones. So, he, I mean, he, this dude was around like all the stuff that you saw in West of Memphis. He actually reported on all that and all that stuff in the Jonesboro newspaper before it happened, before you saw it on the documentary, he's been there the, the whole time. And I was just telling him, we were talking about uh, some of the conflicts that I found with that statement. And I don't really know what to think about it. So um, we may have a, a longer discussion on that uh, if he's on this week. Rena says it could very well be someone we never even considered. And that would be, would be pretty conclusive. Oh, for sure. Say you find, you know, I mean, an ideal scenario would be you find a good DNA profile under multiple bindings and you throw it into CODIS and find out it's some, some known child murderer from another case or something. There's a case. I mean, that would be easy, right? That would be the easiest thing in the world to close this thing. It's more complicated. If it ends up being a family member. Kate says, why is the evidence not being moved to a more secure location? Clearly these fools can't be trusted. I couldn't agree more, but it's supposed to be in the secure location, right? It's the, the police department evidence room. So, uh, yeah, I don't, and, and we don't have possession of it. That's what we're trying to get. That's what all this is about is to get possession of it, to do testing. So we don't, we definitely don't have the right to tell them to put it somewhere, but you know, at least we know where it is. So if it's not there, when we go back, then they're going to have a big problem. Erica says, I'm worried that Cressman may have a voodoo doll with your name on it, Bob. <laughs> you know, he has to go to bed at night cursing your name. Uh, probably, <laughs> probably. I know Cressman's not a fan. I don't know about, uh. Or uh, um, Ellington's not a fan. I'm not so sure about Cressman, but I'm sure he knows that I cause these problems for him. Well, actually, you guys cause these problems for him. Rena says because of precedence, we are all we are pretty sure the testing will be done. Right? I I think so. I mean, I was I was a little concerned when I saw the state's response because you know I didn't I don't know the law, and so when I see a response that says you stupid idiots, you filed the your your request in the wrong court and that makes the whole thing moot and what are, i mean they literally he literally was like you're a stupid idiot for filing this because obviously you can't do dna testing after 36 months and obviously you can't do habeas when somebody's already served their sentence so there was a little concern there but after seeing this response when it was like i mean essentially this is 11 pages of that was the dumbest legal argument i've ever seen in my entire life do you even lawyer, bro? Is like pretty much what this says. 
So, yeah, I'm feeling very confident in it, uh, especially when they're citing the Supreme Court law that's from this case itself from years past. I, I feel pretty good about it. Uh, Josh says, wouldn't that be double jeopardy? I'm assuming you're talking about what I said earlier. So in the scenario that I described earlier where, the, where there was a, a way that they could be tried again, which was if like the conviction is vacated, then the prosecuting attorney could try them again. In that case, it would not be double jeopardy because if the conviction is vacated, it's a reset, like the like the trial never happened, which would allow them to try them again. Can they end back the knife that was pulled out of Jason's pond? No, I mean, they could, but there's that's silly. That that whole knife situation is silly to begin with. There there were multiple witnesses in the police file who told them the reason they knew the knife was there because they saw Jason throw the knife into that pond a year before the murder. So like the whole, it's nonsense that knife. Get out of here with that knife. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Lily says, is money a factor in the testing? And if so, could we raise it? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's we better because I told all of this. All these filings are premised on my promise to Damien's legal team that if they get the if they get the opportunity to test the evidence that between myself personally and my audience, we will fund the testing. So they do not need to worry about how to come up with the money for the testing that will raise it. And also Jillian Pensavali, uh, a good friend of mine, good friend of the show. Um, and good friend of Damien's as well has um, from True Crime Obsessed has, has joined that and, and, and said she is committed to making sure it happens too. So, yeah, we'll make sure it happens. Kathy says they're looking forward to seeing uh, me and Zach in Vegas. Me too. I'm ready to go. I'm, ex- I'm excited about it. It's going to be a busy week for me. I, I'm doing not one, but two presentations on the West Memphis Three with two different guests, which is going to be, and they're both going to be. If you're not, if you're not, if you're don't have tickets to CrimeCon yet, at least get a virtual because it's going to be bananas. There's going to be some craziness happening at CrimeCon. There, there's, it's just going to be, it's going to be something. And so is the uh, live show in Grand Rapids on April 16th. So get tickets to that too. They're super cheap compared to CrimeCon. So Suzanne's asking. We were talking about Jamie Ballard. Who's Jamie? Uh, she's the one that that came forward. Twenty, gosh, what was it? Twenty seventeen, two thousand seven. And says that she saw the boys playing in her backyard. They darted out between her house and the next house on their bikes. And uh, she saw Terry Hobbs come out yelling at the boys to get back here. 
which was a huge thing. It was in the west of Memphis. It was kind of a it was a big deal. And I'd like to believe it because it, it not that not that I have any beef with Hobbs, but it just it's like it at least gives us a clear direction. Oh, something crazy else happened. But the more we picked at that story, it was like there's seven people that say the boys were somewhere else when that happened. So it's hard to believe. Also, you know, 14 years had gone by before she came forward. So she, she I, I think she's probably trying to tell the truth. I just think maybe she doesn't quite remember it correctly. Kareen says, blame the ship captain for not having Janet next week. Yeah, anybody that was on Patreon or the live stream today knows that Janet, Janet was actually going. She's on a cruise for uh, um, some kind of convention for, for the work she does. You know, her, her main job is, is all of her voice acting work. And she was going to ask the ship, the ship captain if they could try to make a port day on Wednesday so she could get some good internet. But I told her not to do that because that's silly. Josh asked, was there any investigation into the Bojangles chicken guy? The whole situation seems weird, and right around the time everything was happening. No, I mean, I looked in, I mean, both on the podcast and the documentary, I think the Bojangles thing is a red herring. I mean, it seems like, you know, bloody man walking into a restaurant at the same time these boys are missing. It's possible, but there's, I mean, there's nothing to investigate. Meek never went in. Regina Meek never went into the restaurant. We don't know who the dude is. They took blood samples, and uh, was a Detective Ridge lost the blood sample. There's nothing to there's nothing we can do. Literally. I mean, it's not like there's there's evidence we can test to find out who that dude is. It's gone. All right. So we're we're coming up on looks like we're about 45 minutes into this. So we're going to take a few more questions. Uh Don McElhaney, who I like to call Doug says Doug says you're buying the beer when he gets to Vegas for CrimeCon. Uh I suppose for years of getting your name wrong, Doug, I'd be happy to buy you one cheap beer. And I'll have an expensive whiskey at the time. Uh, Erica says, any communication with Jesse or Jason? Is that a problem if they aren't listed in the petitions? Not a problem. Uh, and have not had contact with Jesse. Nobody really has. He's hard to find. I mean, he doesn't even have a phone. you got to pretty much like go to the trailer park and then figure out which trailer he's staying in every time I've talked to him. Um, Jason, yeah, I talked to Jason today, as a matter of fact, and yesterday. Yeah, and, he, and he's fully on board with what's happening. He just, he just, it was too complicated and taking too long to get lawyers from everybody to get together and agree on a motion. So, so Damien's team just said, listen, well, what we know is we want to do the testing. And he also knows Jason's in support of the testing. You guys all saw that in the documentary. So they just banged it out and sent it. Beth says, is there any chance it could have been a serial killer? Just curious. There's a chance of everything. I don't think so. Um, there's just nothing in that crime scene to indicate that it was a serial killer. Everything to me looks like it was a crime of opportunity. Personal cause homicide that, you know, probably I, I think something got out of hand with one kid. The other two were witnesses. They got killed. Then everything else we see that was ritualistic was just simply disposing of the bodies. Um, you know, so it was no one would plan to kill somebody in that place. You know, the way it's kind of depicted in like the Devil's Knot movie, it looks like this big secluded place, but it's not. I mean, it's like the size of a football field woods where you could see houses over there and a truck stop there and a highway there right through the I mean finding yourself in that spot with three dead bodies is a big, 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 big problem. And so, uh, you know, whoever did it figured under the water was the best method. Personally, I think they probably tried to push the boys underwater and their, their clothes were catching current and floating them up. So I think they probably pulled them out, stripped them off, stripped the clothes off, use their, use their shoelaces to bind them up, make kind of a smaller package, wrap sticks around them, jam them down under the water. And got out of there. And, and on everything there shows 
that this is a personal cause homicide. This is someone with a known personal relationship with at least one of the victims. Because of their age, it would be some kind of an authority figure to at least one of them, which in the, in the case of eight-year-olds, it could just be any adult could do that. Um, the fact the way the bodies were concealed says that tells me that this person thinks, at least thinks, that people know that he was with those boys. That the type of concealment that was done here, to me, indicates this person knows if those bodies are found, they're going to immediately look at me because I must have been out in the open or somewhere around these boys. I don't know if anybody saw me, so it's imperative that the bodies not be found. None of that is indicative of a serial killer, like a random person. Because it actually is a good place to kill somebody uh, for a serial killer. There's a, the, you know, you can park a semi right there at the Blue Beacon. You could kill the boys and just, so if no one had any, this is 1993, right? Nobody knows about DNA. There's no touch DNA. There's none of that. The boys weren't sexually assaulted. There's no motive there for that. It was just some serial killer. First, the, the problem is, how would you ever possibly know there would be kids in that spot? That's That's silly. It's not a place you would find kids. Uh, so I believe very strongly somebody followed them there from the neighborhood. Uh, but let's just say that you know there's a, a truck driving serial killer at the Blue Beacon. Here's the voices of little kids down in in that little woody patch, and they decide here's an opportunity for me to fulfill my urge to kill little children. And they go down there and they kill them. Well, they would kill them and then leave. They would never, ever, no one would ever spend the amount of time that it would take with those bodies to get them undressed and bound and, and, and hide all that evidence. That entire time you're sitting there with three dead children. So if you don't have any connection to those children and you killed them for the sake of killing them, which is what a serial killer maybe would do, you're just going to get the hell out of there. Like literally go up the hill, get in your truck, drive away. It's 1993. There's no cell phones to track. There's no GPS data. There's no touch DNA. As soon as you get in the truck and hit that highway, you're in the clear. You would never spend that much time with those bodies. It was too big of a risk. The, the behaviors at this crime scene are what tells us this is somebody with a known personal relationship to those boys. And with that, I'll, look, I'll, I'll maybe, maybe answer one more, and then I really got to get going. Uh, mostly because it's going to be a long episode for Mike to edit. Michelle says, as a New Englander, she approves of my get out of here. Yeah, I, I was pretty happy about that myself. Oh, and actually Lilia says, as an Italian-American New Englander, she also approves. So I did it pretty well. Uh, looking for one more, one more question. Andrea says, I bought tickets to your Michigan meetup for my husband and myself. We are so excited to meet you finally. I am super excited to meet you too, Andrea. Plus any of the rest of you that are going to be there. Uh, hey, Tank, I see you just joined. Uh, uh, good to see you, too. Tank's been with this case for a long time. But I got a roll. Seems like uh, the double call tells me there's some sort of an emergency happening. And uh, we're already running up on an hour. Uh, but thank you, all of you who joined the Facebook Live. Thank you to all of you listeners who have put up with these bonus episodes for these past couple of months. This Friday's follow-up will probably be an interview, or it could just be me and Zach. We might do another live. I love doing these with you guys. And for those of you that weren't on the live, hope you're enjoying this. And next Sunday, it's finally happening. Season 12, episode one, coming at you in one week. Truth and Justice is an 
NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show is created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, Erica Cantor, and Jen Reese Incandela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that always include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. To become a patron, just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I personally can be found on social media at BobRuffTruth, and Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro, driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. 
LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.